goal achievers, welcome to Elite Achievement, your go-to podcast for service-based business owners who want to achieve their goals and grow their businesses. Hear inspiring stories from other business owners, learn goal achievement strategies, and overcome the challenges you face when growing your business. I'm Kristen Burke, your host and coach, here to help you achieve your goals. Together, let's close the gap between the goals you set and the goals you achieve. Hey, Goal Achievers, welcome back to Elite Achievement. I am energized to connect with our guest today, Nitya Kirat, to talk about sales. Sales is such an incredibly important topic for all of us business owners and individuals that are in client-facing careers. If we are not out there actively selling, how are people going to know about the services we offer, the products we offer? Sales allows us to make a much bigger impact. And yet there are still a lot of things that can get in our way when it comes to selling. And that's what Nitya and I are going to explore in our conversation today. He is the founder of YOSD Consulting and author of Winning Virtually, 10 Tiny Habits for Big Virtual Selling Success a concept that is likely very relevant in today's time versus prior to the pandemic. Nitya has built, delivered, and coached sales and sales leadership development programs at companies including Google, PIMCO, BlackRock, Kidder Matthews, and others. His sales strategies have also been influenced by his global perspectives. He has lived and worked in several parts of the world, including Singapore, India, Tanzania, and Belgium. Welcome, Nitya. Thank you for having me, Kristen. I know we've been talking about doing this for several months. I'm excited the day is finally here. Yes, the day is here and it's going to be a great conversation. I'm curious, tell us a bit more about the inspiration behind YOSD Consulting. I had a career in sales in the healthcare industry from which I moved into financial services. It was going well, and then 2008, 2009 hit. And even though my numbers were good, just the state of the industry and mass layoffs, I got laid off. And I thought, let me think about what I, what I really want to do here. And I started doing some consulting with a friend of mine who was in sales, sales training. And our work was primarily with larger types of clients. And I realized two things. Number one, I wish I had this quality of training when I was a salesperson. I would have been even more, way more successful if this was available to me versus the sales training that was available at the, at the companies that I worked at. And number two, I wanted this to be available not only to the large companies, but also to salespeople at smaller and mid-market Companies, people where they're not used to as much training or as many resources or as high quality of, of a training experience. And that was the inspiration or reason uh, I started uh, the company. So I know you mentioned you had a corporate career, then you moved into financial services and had an experience to get really quiet and figure out what it is that you wanted to do. Did you always know you were going to be an entrepreneur or did this take you by surprise? 
Some people have the fortune of knowing exactly what they want to do or what, who they want to be when they're five years old and they pursue that, that dream. Others like myself have the fortune of having to go through a journey to figure it out. So absolutely no, did I know I want to be an entrepreneur or ever thought about it. It wasn't really in my purview. I started my career as a chemical engineer, developing pharmaceutical drug processes. From that, I realized that was not the, not me, that not the path I wanted to pursue. Went to grad school, wanted to get into uh, biotech or pharmaceutical marketing. And as I had some informational interviews, the advice I kept getting was, we really like our marketing people to have some sales experience. I said, okay, let me go get some sales experience. I was reluctant about it. Uh, I said, all right, I'll do it for a year and I'll go into marketing after that. I realized I loved sales. I realized it was so much more process oriented than people thought. Um, I enjoyed it. It was, it was me. And that was how I got into sales. And like I mentioned, the moving into the consulting was a little bit by accident. It was a stopgap while I figured out what I really wanted to do. And I realized this is what I really want to want to do. And it's been 10, 11 years now doing this. So a little bit by accident, but I feel fortunate for, for the journey. Isn't it funny how the universe uh, puts you in situations and if you're not, if you're not figuring it out on your own, the universe is going to guide you and, and get you there. So you mentioned uh, it wasn't something you wanted to be when you were five. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you were five? A professional soccer player. I wanted to be a teacher. So I, I feel like I'm living that out in, in various different ways. But Nitya, you, you said you were reluctant to get into sales. And I believe a lot of people probably feel reluctant about sales. Why did you feel reluctant and what's changed for you now that you've had so much experience in the industry? I think to some degree, there's the reputation that certain types of salespeople have that make people not want to be around them or be harassed by them and certainly not want to be them. The other was, I think, just from an upbringing standpoint in my house, we were encouraged to go get higher education and do something I think that's counted as more a smarter job, like being an engineer or being in finance or, you know, fields like that. So I think there's a little bit of that uh, upbringing, a little bit of perception in, in, in society and what, what friends were doing in my business school class, I think out of, out of 300 or so, of us, there were really a handful who moved into sales or sales-related careers. A lot of people are are CEOs of companies, or you know, they went to product marketing. They've gone into investment management. Sales was not something high on a lot of people's list for a few reasons. But to me, I think some of it is a misconception of uh, what it actually entails to be good at it. 
What do you think sales entails to be good at it? A few things. One is the best salespeople I have seen have really strong inclination towards process. People think this person's good at sales because they're really schmoozy or this person's really social and that's why they're good at sales. Those are good skills to have, but the best are highly process oriented. They're planned out. They know how they're going to manage their, their territory or their business. They also have process for how they lead and conduct each conversation. And that's the thing that gets, doesn't get seen by the outside observer, how process oriented they are and how they're dedicated to continuously improving that process. The world changes, you sell different things to different people. It takes adapting to who you're speaking to. Um, so that's one of the big things that I think people don't, don't realize that the importance of process in being a good salesperson. I think that's brilliant that you talk about process. I know in my own business, yes, there's an element of selling, even if you're a coach or you're a consultant. And I struggle doing outreach if I move too far away from my process. But if I follow my process and, and my process involves planning and having an idea of who I'm reaching out to and why I'm reaching out and what product or service would be appropriate. And then I have to have a follow-up process. Following that process removes the emotional decision-making that I can do with sales. Like, oh, should I reach out? And has it been too many attempts? And what are they going to think with me? You know, all that head trash that we all do. You have a lot of conversations. The better you are at being consistent in how those discovery or intro conversations go, the more likely it is you will get the right types of clients. The clients will better understand the value you can provide and there's less ambiguity on is this a good fit or not and that you know when i when i see salespeople and we observe them or we come out of a meeting and they say well that that didn't go so great or that went great the reason it goes great or not is they're they're sort of winging it they're hoping it's going to have be a good conversation yeah we'll just see what what happens the best salespeople are in control of what's about to happen without it seeming like they are in control to the, to the client. It doesn't seem dominating, but they're very much in control and it's through their process. Do you think clients find it reassuring when a sales professional has a process and the sales professional can lead with conviction? Does that help the client say yes? And you, you tell me, you're meeting a, a new CPA or uh, a new, any service provider, would it benefit you if it looked like they knew what they were doing and they were in control? Oh, absolutely. If they're like, and this is the next step and here's how we do this. And th it, it, it absolutely increases my belief that they're an expert in that area. Absolutely. So I think the comfort that people have. And then we, I talk about this in the book in, in the, the start of a meeting is the most important part of the meeting. According to me, you have much more control over starting meetings well, and then having them go well versus starting them 
randomly and then hoping to get in what you wanted to say or dig, dig yourself out of a hole potentially. So a process to start a meeting well. And then the other person also gets it very quickly that this person is a professional. This person's come ready. This person values my time. And this is going to be a good use of, of my time. I think meetings go very differently when the other person realizes that in the beginning that this is going to be a good use of my time. Let's talk about that start of a meeting. How much chit chat or small talk should happen? And then in your opinion, how do you start a meeting really well? I have a colleague who, who says there's no such thing as too much rapport. And it taught me to allow the relationship building to take its course. So I think that's one element of it. Building trust, uh, intimacy, relationships are part of trust. So you want to be uh, able to allow that to happen. However, there's also a natural way to segment into the business portion of the meeting. If I have a 30-minute meeting, I'm thinking by minute five, I should be starting, starting the business part of the meeting. If you have an hour, maybe you give it seven, eight minutes. That's okay. Depends on the past relationship with that person as well. You know, someone and you haven't caught up with them in, in a year. It's nice to talk about what they've been up to and, and, and kids. If it's someone new, it might not be the same with a complete stranger to go into 12 minutes of rapport building. So the time of the meeting matters and building rapport in a genuine way is what really matters rather than have it be a, a, a scripted or, or kind of check the box uh, way of building rapport. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Otherwise it probably feels disingenuous for the other person if you're simply checking a box. So Nitya, you've talked about the importance of process. You've talked about how we start a meeting. Are there other elements or tactics that are critical for sales? Yes, they're all in my book. <laughs> so go read the book. <laughs> uh, well, in, in chapter five, we talk about an agenda framework to help you start meetings. And there have been times where I've been on the other side of the world, we do three days of training with a group. And at the end, we ask people, what was the biggest takeaway that you, that you got? And this framework often ends up being the number one thing. And we all think I've started thousands of meetings. I know how to share an agenda, but there are some nuances here that really help create greater engagement and buy-in that help the middle and the end of meetings go well. So that's really one, one big element. The other things are asking good questions. We believe if you ask any salesperson, is it good to ask questions in a meeting? All of them will say yes, but it's not just about asking questions for the sake of asking questions. It's asking the right questions. It's asking them in the right way. It's asking them in the right order so that you maximize the the, the time and the use of those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a client, you likely don't want to be talked at 
for an entire 60 minutes uh, of conversation. In the book, we realized when the world moved to virtual meetings from in-person, yeah, nobody wants the other, the salesperson or the other person to talk the whole time in any situation. But if we were sitting down uh, across your desk face-to-face and you've put 30 minutes on the calendar and I'm trying to sell you something, you're likely to be there for 30 minutes and hopefully looking at me and listening to what I have to say. In the virtual world, you don't have that luxury. We talk about the paradigm shift being the, the microphone has to exchange hands early and often. If three or four minutes go without the other person doing something or saying something or acknowledging something, there's a really good chance that that's about the end of their attention span. And now there will look at maybe, let me see what email just came in, or uh, I wonder what the stock market's doing right now. And you've, you've lost them. So virtually the big thing is how can you make it a dialogue versus a monologue? So there are definitely more distractions in a virtual environment. Let's talk a bit about a sales development program or a sales leadership development program. What makes successful sales trainings or sales programs? A couple of things, in my opinion. Number one, when we think about the most successful programs, there's commitment and buy-in from leadership. Them showing up for three or four minutes to kick off the first training session goes a really long way to demonstrate to everyone else how important this is, how big an investment the company is making. So buy-in from leadership upfront makes a lot of difference in how the programs end up resulting. The other thing that we really believe in that attributes to the success of our programs is relevance. Salespeople, they, they, they will sit and listen as long as they believe they're getting value and what they're hearing is going to be applicable to their jobs, to applicable to their roles and help them make more money. As long as you're doing that, they're very eager to have training. But if it is not relevant, if it is not at the right level, if it is something that just won't work in their space, they check out and they, they want to be gone. They want to be gone making phone calls and, and meeting, meeting customers. So that relevance is, I think, what makes programs successful. And then the last point is for it to be thought of, training to be thought of as a process versus an event, right? You can do a four-hour session, get, get one idea. That's fine, but there's a good chance you go back to doing what you were doing unless we extend the impact of learning one and done. I find most people benefit from hearing the same concept multiple times. It's going to hit them in multiple different ways. They're going to be able to have different perspective each time they learn a concept. And sometimes we as humans have so much going on. We just need to hear things more than once. Your role as a coach is a big part of that. I'm sure you share a lot of brilliant ideas and ways with your clients, but Sometimes it's just hearing it one more time or, you know, it's been six months since they heard something. 
hearing it again gets them back on track. So same idea here. As you were discussing sales training, you mentioned that if it's not relevant, sales professionals are likely going to want to make calls and be on meetings. And and this, Nitya, it, it triggered a, a question in my mind. This inspired a question in my mind. Call reluctance is a big topic that comes up with uh, a lot of individuals that I coach, people that are in sales. What are your opinions on call reluctance and how do we work through it? Uh, There's some nature versus nurture to this. There are definitely some people who are built for making calls and getting rejected and being excited about the next call. It's hard to find those, but if you're a leader of a company that needs to make sales calls, those are the types of people you want to uh, try to vet for in your interview process and hire. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it is, um, is the nurture. So things like uh, goal setting, which, which you know, things like uh, time management and, and, and call blocking, things like support from a coach or a colleague. I, I have a client And I comment to them, they've created this amazing culture where their, their team loves and is hungry and makes calls. You know, I think, uh, 150 calls a a day, I mean, a week from each of the, uh, in the real estate space, each of the, each of the brokers and, uh, some of its culture that's, that's created it to, to succeed there. And then there's an element of, if I believe what I am calling about, what I'm selling can really add value to this other person's life, I'm much more likely to not worry about all the people who aren't interested because I want to find those people whose lives I can impact and change. If you don't really believe that, then it becomes especially hard to keep getting rejected over something you're not 100% convinced about yourself. So sometimes if there's call reluctance, you might ask if the people are the right people for that role or for selling what they're selling, um, or people need to look themselves in the mirror and figure out, am I, am I committed enough or passionate enough about what we do? And uh, other times it's, the, the support they get, it's the systems that are set up by leadership, it's you know gamification to, to make it happen, it's time blocking, thing, things like that uh, are also tools that can help create more, more calls. You mentioned rejection, and that's certainly a big piece of it and likely a huge roadblock when it comes to selling. People don't wake up in the morning and say, yes, let me get rejected today. (laughs) What are some other roadblocks or hesitations when it comes to being successful with sales? There's two things that the most successful salespeople do that others don't do. One is, as I mentioned, the process part and being really diligent about their process. The top salespeople have a routine they'll do in the morning. Like they know, okay, I got to get this workout in 
and I'm going to have a great day. Or I need to, you know, bang out these 20 messages or calls before I take a break for an afternoon coffee. They, they're very regimented around their, their time while being flexible. The second one is they just work harder. There's also a numbers element to, to sales. You make three more calls a day than the person sitting next to you. That's 600 more calls in a year. There's a good chance you'll sell more than the person next to you. So it's that element of, you know, let me make one more call. Let me, let me work on this half an hour more. So people who outwork the competition also see better results. Yeah, sounds like a huge theme there with the discipline and dedication to what it is that you are doing. What are some mistakes sales professionals make? The biggest one is we talk too much. And when usually the people who are sitting next to you at your own company don't tell you that you talk too much because they know the product. They know they also talk too much. Like they, they're passionate about hearing about whatever it is you're selling without realizing the other person cares potentially less. And so talking too much is a, a big negative that I, that I see um, in, in, in salespeople. Generally, when people are newer in their careers, this is a bigger red flag that I see. They're nervous. They've done their research. They've studied the, the, the product. Now they're ready to talk about it versus a more seasoned salesperson understands that they'll, they'll share valuable information, but the, the meeting is about understanding the client and how this can fit and demonstrating value hearing the client. So that's, that's kind of the big thing I see that salespeople do. They, they talk too much about what they're selling. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense if you're newer in a sales career, you're likely nervous. And we often mistake sharing all the knowledge and everything we know as a way to show our competence. Uh, how do you think a sales professional can build confidence so they can move from the talking too much to having a very eloquent sales process? To some degree, the first step is awareness. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a story. A lot of my, my sales uh, methodologies come from experience uh, in the dating world. And uh, I would go on dates and there were certain dates where the date would end and I thought, oh, that went so great. She's really cool. I'm looking forward to hanging out again. And then I send a message, you know, day later, three days later nothing. They're ghosting me. Sometimes they were more polite, but that, that happened. And I'm like, well, I, well, that's weird. I thought we had a great connection. And then there were dates where I thought it was one of the most boring experiences of my life. And I was pretty sure they thought the same thing and realized there was no chemistry. And, you know, we 
the, the date would end and I'd get a text. I had a great time. I'd love to hang out again. And I'm like, were we on the same date? And I realized in the meetings that I thought we had such a great connection, I was doing most of the talking. And in the meetings that I thought were really boring and we had no connection, they were doing most of the talking. So the lesson for me was, if you want a second date, don't do all the talking. Now, you want it to be natural and there to be natural chemistry, but there is some element of, all right, what are some questions I'm going to ask this person to show interest and learn about them? Simple step. Most salespeople don't do that before a meeting. They don't think about what are the three questions I would like to ask this person at some point in the meeting. What an awesome tip to leave us with here. So identify three questions to ask, and that's going to help build that rapport that we talked about, help you with the uh, intro. It will help you build rapport and start your meetings on a positive note. Uh, I've seen you host on LinkedIn knit chats. What are knit chats and how can people participate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the knit chat was something we came up with when COVID started and networking became uh, a little bit more difficult and suddenly we had all these new challenges that sales leaders had to deal with. So um, we host it monthly. It's uh, pretty intimate. We get four or five sales leaders across different industries together. It's not recorded. Everything we talk about is, is confidential and it's just a very honest dialogue about key challenges like hiring, like onboarding, are you coming, figuring out how to come back to the office or, or not? How do you motivate Gen Zers differently than you motivate a different generation? Topics that are relevant and we brainstorm, people share their best ideas, they get an idea or two, everyone also meets some like-minded people. So we deliberately keep it small so that it's a conversation. It's designed for sales leaders. We've had leaders who lead teams as small as three or four salespeople and up to seven or 800 salespeople in their organization. So it's a nice mix. Always good people. If any listeners are, are leaders overseeing sales teams, please reach out. I'd love to, love to have you join uh, an upcoming knit chat. So spin off on chit chat. That's, that's how it came about. You're I was wondering where the name came you're, from. You're chatting with Nitya. So instead of a chit chat, it's a knit chat. A knit chat. How can our listeners connect with you and learn more about the knit chats? Absolutely. You can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. We try to put out value added, interesting posts frequently. You can reach out to me directly if you would like to learn more about training for, for your team. You can visit the website, YOSD consulting.com. Uh, if you're interested in the book, it's on Amazon. You can search by my name or winning virtually. Let me know what you think if you do pick it up. So definitely a, a few different ways you can uh, stay connected if this is a topic of, of interest for you. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing so many insightful tips around sales and becoming successful in sales. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Awesome to be with you. With that, Goal Achievers, keep celebrating your weekly wins, noting your lessons learned, and identify your priorities for next week 
so you can consistently pursue progress in the direction of your goals. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on goal achieving and business growing wisdom. If you want my best goal achieving tips and a monthly reminder to check in on your goals, join my email list at kristenburke.com. 